Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparella. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, February 23rd through Saturday, the 25th, feature Ricardo Muti conducting a program of Robert Schumann, violin concerto with soloist Julia Fischer, and the Manfred Symphony by Peter Tchaikovsky. Here are Philip Husher's program notes on the Schumann Violin Concerto, a work lasting about 30 minutes. On September 30th, 1853, an unknown 20-year-old composer named Johannes Brahms showed up unannounced at the home of Robert and Clara Schumann. He came with an introduction from the great violinist Josef Joachim, for whom Robert was then writing a concerto. The following day, Schumann noted in his journal, the violin concerto is finished a visit from Brahms, a genius. Brahms' visit and Schumann's immediate publicizing of his extraordinary talent is one of the most celebrated stories in music, but the violin concerto remained unknown for more than 80 years. There are few mysteries in music as odd as the neglect and eventual rediscovery of this violin concerto. To understand how a major work by an established composer came to be completely forgotten, we must turn to the circumstances of its composition in 1853, a time that brings together all of the players who had a role in determining its fate. Schumann himself probably guessed that his score would eventually surface someday because he was, after all, the one responsible for unearthing Schubert's great C major symphony in 1839 and overseeing its posthumous premiere. It was Joachim, the young superstar violinist, who asked Schumann to write him a concerto. Schumann apparently agreed at once and had been highly impressed with Joachim's performance of Beethoven's Violin Concerto in 1851, and he was even more enthusiastic after Joachim visited him in Dusseldorf in August 1853, and they spent two days together playing chamber music. Schumann began composing the new concerto on September 21st and completed it in just 13 days, interrupted in the final stretch by Brahms' visit. Schumann's journal indicates that the piece was finished on October 1st, but it apparently took him two more days to complete the orchestration. In January, when Robert and Clara went to Hanover, where Joachim had put together a week-long Schumann festival, the violinist read through the new concerto at a rehearsal with orchestra. But he was ill-prepared and tired from his demanding concert schedule, and neither he nor the Schumanns were happy with the concerto's dry run. Over the next months, Robert's mental state deteriorated rapidly, and on March 4th, only days after he attempted suicide, he was institutionalized at Andenich, an eight-hour carriage ride from Düsseldorf, where the Schumanns made their home. Joachim wrote to Schumann, saying that he now knew the concerto better. I did it such injustice, he said of the Hanover reading, and offered to come to Andenich to play it again for him. Joachim did visit Schumann in the asylum twice, but apparently the concerto was never mentioned. In September 1855, Joachim played the concerto again, this time privately with Clara at the piano. The occasion, sadly, was her 15th wedding anniversary. But he never performed it in public. After Robert died in July 1856, Clara and Brahms were at his bedside. The violin concerto was all but forgotten. Some two decades later, 
When Clara undertook the publication of a complete edition of Schumann's music, she, along with Joachim and Brahms, they had all remained close friends, seriously considered including the violin concerto, but ultimately they agreed that it shouldn't be published, that it was a painful reminder of the composer's tragic decline and evidence of his failing creativity. Joachim kept the manuscript of the concerto until his death. When Andreas Moser, who was writing a biography of Schumann, contacted Joachim for information on the unperformed score, Joachim replied that while certain pages, how could it be otherwise, testify to the deep sensibility of the composer, this by contrast unhappily marks the weaker parts more evident. Moser reprinted Joachim's letter in his book, only increasing speculation about the validity of the composer's judgment. After Joachim's death in 1907, his son sold the manuscript to the Prussian State Library in Berlin on the condition that it not be published until 1956, a century after Schumann's death. In 1933, in a final twist of fate that today would merit front-page coverage in the National Enquirer, one of Joachim's great nieces, Jelly Garagny, herself a fine violinist, claimed that she had been in touch with the spirit of Joachim, who told her about an unknown violin concerto that Schumann had composed 80 years earlier and asked her to track it down. In subsequent communications with Jelly, Joachim confessed that he had been far too intolerant and gave his blessing to have the work performed. He never explained why he hadn't mentioned the concerto to her while he was still alive. Willi Strecker of the B. Schatzerne Publishing House soon joined forces with Daragny, and together they convinced Joachim's son to release the concerto. A copy of the manuscript was sent to Yehuda Menuhin, who immediately recognized the worth of the discovery and agreed to give the premiere in San Francisco. But... Germany's highest musical official refused to relinquish the honor of an important Schumann premiere to a Jewish violinist in America. And so the politically correct first performance took place in Berlin, played by Georg Kuhlenkampf, Germany's leading violinist at the time, in November 1937. A month later, Menuhin gave the American premiere, and Derani herself gave the first performance in England in February 1938. Although the Schumann's youngest daughter, Eugenie, then in her late 80s, protested the performance and publication of the score, she could do nothing at this point to keep her father's sole violin concerto from the public. The violin concerto is Schumann's last major completed piece. As a result, the work is still sometimes thoughtlessly dismissed as an example of Schumann's diminished creativity at the end of his life, despite the evidence of the music itself. It also has taken time for musicians to overturn the professional judgment of Joachim, Brahms, and Clara Schumann, the three musicians who knew Robert Schumann best. Of Schumann's three concertos, the D minor violin concerto is the most classical in form. The opening movement is a large, magnificent piece launched by one of Schumann's most expansive and energetic themes. Even Joachim admitted the beauty of the lovely lyrical second theme in the relative major. The solo violin writing is imaginative and deeply expressive, but it's far from idiomatic, which apparently troubled even as fine a violinist as Joachim. For the premier, Kuhlenkampf 
hired Paul Hindemith to rewrite the solo part to make it more conventional and easier to play. Hindemith, already a champion of Schumann's late works, probably agreed because he wanted to help promote the concerto as an important and brilliant score. Subsequent performances, including Menuhin's and Darani's, restored Schumann's original solo part. The brief, slow movement is one of Schumann's most intimate creations, a subdued dialogue between the soloist and gently syncopated orchestral music. It moves directly into the finale, a stately polonaise that carries Schumann's careful warning, lively but not fast, accompanied by a slow metronome marking. This is a joyous and festive movement, but Schumann wanted to make sure that it would lose none of its power and majesty. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Robert Schumann's Violin Concerto. And now, on to Tchaikovsky's Manfred Symphony, a work lasting about 56 minutes. The idea for a symphony based on Byron's Manfred begins with Hector Berlioz. At the tail end of his last trip to Russia, Berlioz conducted Harold in Italy in St. Petersburg in February 1868. Mili Balakirev, the dean of Russian composers and the powerful critic Vladimir Stasov, attended that concert, which marked the end of Berlioz's active career, and they were both taken with Berlioz's orchestral treatment of Byron's Child Harold's Pilgrimage. Balakirev wrote to Berlioz the following September, deploring his decision to stop writing music and urging him to take up Manfred, another subject drawn from Byron that was tailor-made for him. Balakirev even included a detailed outline for a program symphony in four parts based on Byron's dramatic poem. In fact, the outline was Stasov's and he had originally given it to Balakirev, hoping that he would compose the Manfred Symphony, but neither Balakirev nor Berlioz, now in very poor health, showed any interest in tackling Byron's hero. Years passed, and the hope for a Manfred Symphony faded. Then, in 1881, Tchaikovsky wrote to Balakirev saying that he intended to dedicate a new edition of Romeo and Juliet to him, since it was Balakirev who had encouraged Tchaikovsky to compose it in the first place and then badgered him to rework it until he got it right. Balakirev did not reply at first, but when he did, he had a new idea he wanted Tchaikovsky to consider, a symphony based on Byron's Manfred. You would carry it out brilliantly, he wrote, and closing Stasov's scenario, once again uncredited, this time adding a general musical blueprint, complete with proposed tempos and keys for each movement. Tchaikovsky probably took this as an affront, since he had by now written a number of big and important works, including four symphonies, the B-flat piano concerto, a violin concerto, and the opera Eugene Onegin. For myself, Belakirev said, this magnificent subject is unsuitable since it doesn't harmonize with my inner frame of mind. It fits you like a glove. At first, like Belakirev and Berlioz before him, Tchaikovsky was uninterested. It would be perfect for a symphonist disposed to imitate Berlioz, he said, but it leaves me absolutely cold. Furthermore, he had never read Byron's great dramatic poem, written in 1816-1817, and considered one of the touchstones of romantic literature. And finally, there was the brilliant music already written by Schumann. 
I love his Manfred extremely and am so used to merging in a single indivisible notion Byron's Manfred with Schumann's Manfred that I cannot conceive how I might approach this subject in such a way as to elicit from it any music other than that which Schumann furnished it with. Balakirev continued to press the subject on Tchaikovsky. Late in 1884, when Tchaikovsky came to St. Petersburg for the local premiere of Eugene Onegin, Balakirev pleaded his case in person. He gave Tchaikovsky the detailed scenario once again, this time with even more specific musical suggestions. I sincerely wish and hope that Manfred will be one of your pearls, he said. He offered a list of compositions, he called them helpful materials, to think of as models for individual movements, including the finale of Harold in Italy, piano preludes by Chopin, portions of Tchaikovsky's own Francesca de Remini, and the scherzo from his third symphony. Tchaikovsky agreed to read Byron's poem and promised to give the idea of the program symphony serious thought. He was already planning a visit to the Alps to see his friend, the violinist Josef Kotek, who was gravely ill, and there, in the very landscape where Byron's Manfred roamed and with a copy of the poem in hand, he would perhaps find the inspiration for the new symphony. While in Switzerland, Tchaikovsky read Manfred, a dramatic poem, and he realized at once that it suited him after all. It did, in fact, harmonize with his inner frame of mind, as Balakirev had put it. He was in a particularly troubled and reflective mood, and he had recently read Tolstoy's confessions about the author's search for the meaning of life. In St. Petersburg, he and Belokirev had talked openly about death and the consolations of religion. In Manfred, Tchaikovsky saw a fellow outsider yearning to understand his place in the world and a kindred spirit struggling with the torment of sexuality. For Manfred, as for Byron, it was incestuous seduction. For Tchaikovsky, it was repressed homosexuality. Tchaikovsky began to write music in April 1885. It went slowly at first. It's a thousand times pleasanter to compose without a program, he wrote to his friend Sergei Taneyev. But by the end of May, he had sketched the entire symphony. He spent the summer orchestrating it, admitted that once he began, he became so carried away that he could not stop. In August, he wrote to his patroness and confidant, Najda von Neck, I am working on a very difficult, complicated symphonic work on the subject of Byron's Manfred, which happens to have such a tragic character that occasionally I turn into something of a Manfred myself. By now, his identification with Manfred was complete. Manfred was finished that September. The symphony has turned out vast, serious, difficult, swallowing up all my time, sometimes wearying me extremely, he wrote to the opera singer Emilia Pavlovskaya. But an inner voice tells me that I am not laboring in vain and that the work will be, perhaps, the best of my symphonic compositions. Finally, at the end of September, he wrote to Balakirev that he had finally carried out his wish. I have sat over Manfred, not rising from my seat, you might say, for almost four months. What began as hard labor, he now confessed, was sheer joy once he became captivated by his subject. 
The biggest orchestral work Tchaikovsky had written, and the one demanding the greatest number of players, Manfred stands alone in Tchaikovsky's output as his only unnumbered symphony. It falls between numbers four and five. The premiere in Moscow in March of 1885 was very well received. I think that this is my best symphonic work, he wrote to von Meck after the premiere, and within the year it was played in St. Petersburg. Theodore Thomas gave the U.S. premiere in New York in December 1886, less than five years before he moved to Chicago to found what we now know as the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. As Tchaikovsky was quick to point out to Balakirev, he maintained the general outlines of Stasov's original outline, only switching the second and third movements. He had also taken to heart Balakirev's idea that, like Berlioz's Symphonie Fantastique, the symphony must have its own idée fixe, representing Manfred himself, which would permeate the entire work. And so, Tchaikovsky's opening measures return almost unchanged in each of the latter movements. The first movement proved undoubtedly the best, Tchaikovsky reported to Balakirev following the Moscow premiere, and it is one of the composer's most original and thrilling creations, a large, complex structure that moves unerringly from the brooding opening, the embodiment of Manfred, through music of breadth and passion, representing Astarte, whom he had once loved, to the stunned climax. Manfred wanders the Alps, Stasov's outline suggested, tormented by fateful pangs of doubt, rent by remorse and despair, his soul the victim of nameless suffering. Although Tchaikovsky at first complained about writing music to illustrate a program, the narrative gave structure, emotional depth, and meaning to one of the longest stretches of music in his output. Even when Tchaikovsky later turned against the Manfred Symphony, claiming that he no longer thought it was among his very best works, he argued that the opening movement should be salvaged and turned into a grand symphonic poem. He knew that he had not written anything finer. The second movement, Scherzo, is a marvel of orchestral wizardry and a study in color and texture. The Alpine Ferry appears before Manfred in a rainbow, Tchaikovsky wrote of this movement. At the beginning, the music is nothing but atmosphere, light and ephemeral. The middle section introduces a long-spanned melody to suggest the ferry herself before Manfred darkens the mood almost irrevocably. Tchaikovsky called the slow movement a pastoral, the simple, free, and peaceful life of the mountain people. He begins with a Siciliana, a gentle dance that instantly conjures the pastoral world, and continues with hunting calls, a spirited peasant dance, and eventually Manfred's own appearance, which is no more than a fleeting intrusion into this lovely country scene. After the premiere, Tchaikovsky told Balakirev that the Moscow audience found the finale the most effective of all. But this movement has always come in for the strongest criticism, even from Tchaikovsky himself, who probably recognized early on that Stasov's original scenario was a hodgepodge that resisted musical continuity. Tchaikovsky's short note at the head of the movement suggests the musical challenge he faced. Aremane's underground palace, Manfred appears in the middle of a bacchanal, evocation of Astarte's ghost. She predicts an end to his earthly sufferings. 
Death of Manfred. Stasov envisioned the finale as a wild, unrestrained allegro, and that is how Tchaikovsky begins quite brilliantly. The sequence of the music that follows is driven more by plot than musical logic, and Tchaikovsky's decision to incorporate a fugue in the midst of so much action and adventure was questioned almost from the first performance. Finally, Manfred's theme adds gravitas and predicts tragedy, and Astarte's music, appearing in a haze of harp glissandi, recalls lost passion. Manfred dies, accompanied by a grand chorale of organ chords, and the music slowly unwinds and resolves to suggest a piece that is less certain in Byron. He's gone, his soul hath taken its earthless flight. Whither? I dread to think, but he is gone. A postscript. The Russian conductor Evgeny Svetlanov has made his own addition to the finale that omits the fugue and tacks on the coda of the first movement in place of the organ apotheosis. That version is often performed today, but it is arguably more faithful to Byron, but it is not what Tchaikovsky wrote. Ricardo Muti conducts the composer's original finale at this week's concerts. Program notes by Philip Husher on Tchaikovsky's Manfred Symphony. I'm Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.